I'm Mark Amender, and this is Knowledge Wonderland. Welcome to the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. I'm Mark Amender. Our guest today, Michael Cohen of the Boston Globe, will talk with us about politics, today's politics, and the politics of 1968. He has an awesome new book out with great insights that can be gleaned about the larger undercurrents, the tectonic shifts in American politics that began in the period from 1964 to 1968. You can still hear their echoes today in the words and appeal of Donald Trump. There is no one better really to talk about the election than Michael Cohen, and we'll get to that in just a second. In the meantime, though, just want to ask up front, if you like this podcast, and I hope you do, if you're listening, you like it on some level, even if you don't, please go to the podcast store, the place you downloaded this podcast from, whether it's from iTunes on Apple or it's the Google store or anywhere else, and review it for us. I would like a five-star review because I'm greedy. I think the podcast is a four-star podcast. I'd be fine with a three-star review. So now that you know that's in the mix, you can, you can decide which of the three you'd like. Maybe, maybe go with the middle option. The middle option would be the best option. I want to thank the folks at Acast for distributing this podcast. If you want to be a podcaster or you like podcasts, check out Acast.com. It's a one-stop shop for podcasters and people who love them. Our presidential election has distinct echoes of 1968, right? One party is on the verge of fracturing. Another is kind of groping for a new consensus based on changing demography. There's a populist outsider with demagogic appeal and not a small amount of nativism and even racism. An, an insurgent upstart Democrat suggestions that both conventions are going to be chaotic magnified by this larger conviction that neither political party has the right answer. Michael A. Cohen's new book, American Maelstrom, the 1968 election and the politics of division, came out just in time for Donald Trump's presumptive nominee crowning. 1968 was an incredible year in America, a tragic year, assassinations, riots, the complete and utter breakdown of the Vietnam consensus. And so many great books have been written about that year and the presidential election, but few have actually looked at politics, small p politics, right? We tend to think that politics maybe is, is too base to look at and there are larger structural forces in play. And historians think this is true to the point where they've stopped writing about politics, but not Michael Cohen, and I'm very grateful for that. As he shows in this book, and as you will see, Political decisions made by everyone from LBJ to Richard Nixon to George Wallace changed the way that people lived their lives and changed history. Politics really matters. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many, many books have been written about this election, but they don't really go into the political tactics. And I think one of your purposes was to kind of explain some things that hadn't really been explained before. Um, You know, how a Republican Party that had been discredited um, and kind of fallen victim to the liberal consensus was able to vault to victory, why the Democratic Party went from getting what was it, 60, 61% of the popular vote? 43. To 43 yeah. in 68. Um, and then, as you write, you know, nor did the, the, uh, the, these approaches explain why low unemployment coupled with steady and strong economic growth provided such little benefit to the incumbent party. Um, so one of your answers from the perspective of writing history was just to focus on on small p politics, which, you know, kind of gets people's hackles up because it's, it's normally, it's normally not the, the most high-minded approach to writing about these big topics, but in some sense it, it really offers explanations here where other explanations fail. Yeah, it's true. And and it's interesting too, I think that it's, one of the places where I think that was most interesting was when looking at the Democratic race, particularly the primary race between McCarthy and Kennedy. And, uh, Kennedy. Um, because, you know, Kennedy has this image today of somebody who was sort of the sort of great liberal, sort of liberal saint, if you will, who, who right. struck down the 40 chance to become president. Um, and one of the things that you look at in the book is that he was a pretty, um, pretty political guy. He wasn't this great idealist, the way some people sort of remember him. He was, he was ruthless as People sort of that, which was the which was that how people thought of him back in 1968, right? Um, and he took, you know, he was somebody who talked a lot about racial reconciliation. Um, but once the campaign sort of picked up, he, he really did pivot to talking more about crime. Um, he, he 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 made some talked about himself how he was the the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, right? Um, and he sort of moved away from that racial reconciliation argument, especially with with white audiences. And he wasn't a great candidate either. I mean, in the sense but, that. I, People's popular. He didn't rise in popularity. People disliked him. The yeah, more they saw the him. Yeah, that's thing that's also really striking with Kennedy is that he. The more people got to see him on the campaign trail, the less they liked him. And so by the point that you you reach in um uh in basically May of of sixty eight, his appro- he was running third in in polls behind Humphrey and Gene McCarthy. Uh, and uh, you know he wasn't a great candidate. He wasn't very popular. Whites had a had a very negative view of him. He, he did well because, and, and this is some reminiscence to today, he did well because he had such strong support among among black and, and Hispanic voters, and that that's why he won in Indiana and why he did well in in California. And he did also had strong support about Native American voters, which helped him in uh, in uh, South Dakota. So this was a it's interesting with Kennedy. One thing that I was fascinated with working on the book is the sort of demystification of, of Kennedy, and you sort of realize that. That you know, look, I, I think he was a fascinating politician. I think he would have been a, a, a fascinating president. Would have been a, probably a very good president. But he was somebody who was not the great idealist that he's so portrayed as, and was somebody also who wasn't as popular. And he did uh, not appeal to Democrats. He didn't. Yeah, I mean, 
he did not appeal to blue collar Democrats, which is part of the the myth of the of the Kennedy mystique that year. And one of the reasons why, when people are talking about these counterfactuals in history, well, if Kennedy hadn't been assassinated that year, um, and hadn't been shot in in Los Angeles, well, he would have gone on to win the Democratic nomination, which which you you look at in depth and you just you know you you think of you fairly well demolish that um, as a as a counterfactual myth. I mean, the chances that he would have gone on to win were were pretty slim. Very slim, right? And for two reasons. One is that, you know, the, we, today we've gotten very used to the political process of going through primaries and caucuses and the voters get to decide. In 68, that was not the way things were. It basically was decided state conventions. And you had a few primaries, uh, about a handful, that were binding, in which you could win delegates, California, Indiana, Oregon, uh, Wisconsin, New Hampshire. But in general... Most of the delegates were chosen by party leaders uh, at these state conventions. And so as it turned out, Hubert Humphrey, who didn't run in a single primary in 68, ended up being the nominee because he had the support of, of Democratic Party leaders and, and the Democratic establishment. Uh, the other reason why Kennedy wouldn't have won is that big swaths of the party didn't like him. Right, Labor didn't like him. Um, that was partly because of what happened in the 50s with his investigation. Right. Hoffa. But he had, a, he had a lousy relationship with the AFL-CIO. Um, and, and Labor much preferred Humphrey, who they had a long-standing relationship with. Um, the Southern delegates couldn't stand Kennedy right. uh, for his views on civil rights. Um, and a lot, among a lot of the, the party establishment, they really didn't like Kennedy. They saw him as somebody who'd come in uh, as sort of a usurper uh, of party leadership from from Johnson and then Humphrey. So so he was not – he did not have great support. And finally, by the way, Johnson couldn't stand him. Right. And Johnson – Historically – Whatever he had to do to stop Kennedy from being the nominee, um, and that actually, in a weird way, is what ended up costing Humphrey. Uh, because when Kennedy died, it really made it. Uh, if Kennedy had lived, Johnson would have been so fearful, I think, of Kennedy being the nominee that he would have said to Humphrey, "If you need to separate yourself from me on the war," he would have allowed him to do it. Uh, but with Kennedy dead, Johnson no longer needed to do that because Humphrey was almost guaranteed to be the nominee, and so it, I think it, it actually increased. The stubbornness of Johnson to to basically give Humphrey the leeway to distance himself from the White House and from Johnson on, on the war in Vietnam. But Humphrey tried to to do that um, over and over and over and over again in in ways that might have actually shown that leeway, or at least demonstrated to the public that leeway in a way that redounded to his own political benefit. And Johnson, for reasons of of perhaps presidential prerogative, but also of pride, um, really didn't t- loosen the reins that much. Yeah, um, he, he didn't. In fact, if anything, I believe that, you know, that, that he actually ended up costing Humphrey the election uh, because of his unwillingness. Well, what he did, Humphrey's, Humphrey's lack of courage in standing up to Johnson. Um, but, you know, if you look at what happened from basically the Kennedy assassination until in June, until the convention, which was in August, Humphrey, on, on multiple occasions, tried to you know draft language uh, for the party's platform that would pacify the anti-war wing of the party, um, but also you know keep Johnson happy. And he, right up to the convention, you had a situation in which basically his his staff had drafted language that had signed off on by pretty much every wing of the party: the Kennedy people, the McCarthy people, even inside the White House. Uh, Dean Rust, Walt Rostow, two of the biggest hawks in the administration. Had basically gone gone along with the language that John that Humphrey was advocating for, which called for a, a basically a conditional bombing halt in Vietnam. 
and Johnson would not go along with it. And and so it's to both Johnson's discredit that he wouldn't allow Humphrey to do this, but also Humphrey's discredit that he wouldn't stand up to Johnson and just go ahead and do it And himself. do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Eventually he did do it. Uh, in the end of September, he gave a speech in Salt Lake City that turned the campaign around for him. Uh, and and, and it, that's when his, his, uh, his, his comeback began. Uh, in the polls, and he, he ended up losing by just a, a half a half a point, five hundred thousand um, five hundred thousand uh, uh, votes. But yeah, to both of them, I think the, the lack of the, both the lack of courage and the stubbornness on the part of Johnson that to me is is the great you know counterfactual of this campaign. That had that gone differently, and had Humphrey at the convention in Chicago, you know, or before the convention in Chicago, even better, you know. Uh, done something to pacify the anti-war wing of the party. Maybe you don't have the riots that you have in Chicago, or, the, or they aren't as, as 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 bad. You certainly aren't going to have the Gene McCarthy who refuses to endorse Humphrey until uh, October of '68, till a few days before the election. Uh, you don't have the, the constant heckling that uh, John that Humphrey experienced on the campaign trail throughout the fall of '68 until he basically separates himself from Johnson on the war. Uh, to me, that is the great, you know, what if moment, and, and I think if it had gone differently, I, I, I believe the Humphrey would have won the won the, won the election. In some ways, the what if moment though is rooted in decisions Johnson made early. I mean, you have this remarkable memo from Humphreys to Johnson, uh, laying out a clear case early on in their administration for de-escalating, which uh, Johnson didn't really listen to. In fact, was um, the the memo itself. Uh, because parts of it were made public, was a sign to Johnson of Humphrey's disloyalty and kind of lowered him several, uh, you know, several echelons uh, in the White House totem pole, at least in Johnson's eyes. Right. You write that Johnson, I mean, this was an era where there was enormous disunity domestically. Johnson might have been able to hold the country together if he had found a way to unify the country on Vietnam. Um, so he called his policies the middle ground, but he kind of lost the middle, the unifying factor yes. with that. And and that ultimately was one reason why he himself decided not to run, but also um, why, it, I mean, it, it, in many ways, this sense of uh, America not having some sort of a core that it could unite around gave an enormous opening to Republicans. I mean, if, if, if again, if a lot of counterfactuals here, and we hate to engage, we love to engage with those, but we like we to say, we, to. We, we, we like, we have to say that we hate to engage with those, but you, you wonder if the Democratic Party had managed to hang together and not hang separately on Vietnam, whether the opening for Nixon would have been as, um, as significant as it was, and he was able to use, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll switch to the Republicans in a second and, and switch to domestic policies a bit, um, but yeah. it, it really is a political failure of Johnson's here. A absolutely. This is the thing about it that, that, that I, again, I didn't think I totally understood this until I started working on the book. The extent to which Vietnam was, I mean, obviously it was a military failure, obviously it was a policy failure, but it was an enormous political failure for Johnson and for the Democratic Party. And, and my, my conviction from working on this book is that, that Vietnam destroyed the Democratic Party, uh, at least in 1968. I mean, the, the Democratic Party survived and it, and it, and it, and it uh, stumbled along for quite a I mean, obviously it's much stronger today than it was then, but it really did enormous damage to the party. 
and, and, and primarily because it just divided the party between those who swore the war and those who were opposed to it. And the thing is that, that ultimately the blame for this, to my, in my view, lies you know, almost solely on, on Johnson. You know, it's not – you could go back to 65 and you could say certainly in 65, you know, Humphrey warned him directly about the threat of, of what would happen to him politically if he escalated in Vietnam. I mean a memo that is incredibly prescient that basically lays out sort of all the bad things that will happen politically if you do this. That people will, will no longer view Democrats as, as the peace party, which they had after 64 and after Goldwater had run as, a, as, a, as an uber hawk. You know, he said, you know, Humphrey warned that is a liberal wing of the party that would end up uh, being most upset about escalation in Vietnam. He was right about that. I mean, he, he warned that it was going to it was going to cut into to Johnson's domestic agenda. Again, this ended up being correct. But Johnson still escalated. But even after that decision, you know, there were certainly off ramps along the way for Johnson. And to me, the big one is the fall of '67. Because it's at this point when public support for the war has really declined, congressional support is declining, you know, support in, among the major newspapers, much media organizations has declined, New York Times is basically coming out against the war, Time and Newsweek and so forth. So you, you have this, this, and of course, the, the, the opposition within the Democratic Party had escalated pretty dramatically by that point. So November of 67, so McCarthy announces he's going to challenge Johnson because of the war in Vietnam. So this period in 67 is really when, in my view, Johnson you know, had a decision to make. Either you escalate the war and try to end it quickly, which is actually what most Americans would have wanted him to do, or you de-escalate. You try to de-Americanize the war, which is what uh, Robert McNamara, his defense secretary, actually suggests that you do. Um, and, and in my view, that even though most Americans wanted to just to escalate the war, what they wanted more than anything else was to end the war. That's what they wanted. They wanted a plan from the White House to end the war, and Johnson didn't have one. And Johnson, instead of saying, either de-escalating or escalating, decides to just kick the can down the road. And that's what he does. Uh, basically, decides to continue the policy. Uh, he he uh, opens up this thing called the Success Offensive, which is a public relations effort to convince Americans the war is going well. They bring Westmoreland, who's the who's the you know the American general in charge of Vietnam, back to the U.S. He gives uh, the, you know the, the light of the tunnel speech. I mean, this is the, this is the moment when they try to convince Americans that in fact, no, we're winning. It's not a stalemate. You know, we can succeed in Vietnam. Uh, and then Tet happens, the Tet Offensive end of January, and that basically bursts the bubble uh, and convinces Americans that Johnson's been lying about the war and he has no plan to win the war. And, and that's really kind of when Johnson's presidency ends, more or less, because it's not just the, the, the liberal wing of the party, the anti-war wing of the party that is upset. It's the right as well, because they feel that Johnson has no strategy for winning in Vietnam, and he doesn't have strategy for winning in Vietnam. Um, and so in my view, that political decision of not making a decision by Johnson in 67, you know, sort of sets the whole year in motion because it leads to the, to the McCarthy uh, uh, primary against him. It leads to Kennedy then getting in the race. It leads to, of course, Johnson dropping out of the race. Um, and it gives a huge political opening to Republicans uh, because of the just complete lack of unity among the Democratic Party. And even with all of that, with all of those terrible things, I still, you know, Humphrey almost wins. He almost and wins. I, I, and again, I think with all of the, this, 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 that, that should tell you, by the way, about, you know, how untrusted uh, Nixon was, how much stronger position the Democratic Party was, uh, and how a party that, that had operated semi-competently in 68 could have actually won the election. Well, you, you write about the difference between the primary, where you had you know, exciting candidates, lots of people turning out, vitality, and then the general, a presidential nominee who had never won a contested primary, uh, these are your words, as, you know, a segregationist bomb thrower, and then Nixon, 
whom you called his best attribute was being better than the alternative. Right. I love that. Um, uh, it was a, you know, it was, it was a, in many ways, it was, it was kind of a letdown. Let I mean, the Democrats were incredibly disunited out of, uh, disunited after, after Chicago. Right. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and on the, on the Republican side, uh, George Wallace saw his opening. He had a very specific plan, which I had forgotten until I read your book, but, you know, he wanted to throw the election to the House of Representatives and then extract concessions yeah. from, from Southern Democrats, essentially, uh, or Southern Democrats, just Southerners to, in order to win, uh, right. in order to, order, in order to, to, um, perpetuate the segregationist, right. uh, status quo. Um, when you were when you were writing about this, did anything surprise you about the Wallace about the Wallace run? Because um, it still seems, in some ways, even given our politics today, surprising that an out and out and out segregationist could mount a bid like that and win five states in yeah. uh, in nineteen sixty eight. And by the way, you know, Wallace ended up with about thirteen percent of the popular vote. He was in the in the low twenties uh, in the beginning of September. Um, he he um, had a lot of support, and he, he was a third party candidate, and he was a Democrat uh, who had a third party candidate. And you know, it's funny when working on the book, I knew Wallace was a pretty important character, uh, but I think working on the book, I, I kind of conclude he's the most important candidate in '68, uh, even though he did the worst of uh, of, uh, of three uh, candidates in, in the general election. But he really did sort of create the narrative of, of post '68 politics, um, the sort of anti government. Um, anti-elitist um, conservatism that Republicans would pick up, but one that really focused on, I think, white anxiety and white resentment and white fear about the costs of integration. I mean, th this is the thing about, you know, the other, the other big issue, of course, in 68, as the war in Vietnam, is, is, is civil rights and crime in particular. Um, and these two ended up being very much, you know, conflated. Um, and for a lot of white Americans, uh, not just in the South, but elsewhere, you know, they viewed the the, uh, the cost of integration, which, you know, the impact it had on, on schools, on neighborhoods, um, on workplaces, and ways that affect, something that affected them negatively, right? So, you know, blacks moving into their neighborhoods because of, of, of uh, you know, easing on, on housing restrictions, they believe meant that their housing values would go down. Um, in some cases, it did. Uh, that It was based on pure racism that it often did, but it did have that effect. So they, they, their fears weren't completely um, uh, made up. Uh, there were fears that on, on busting, on their kids being sent to, uh, to, to uh, schools outside their neighborhoods to ensure integration in the schools. Um, you know, there were fears about crime. Uh, and, 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 and the fears about crime were legitimate, by the way. I mean, if you look back at the, the mid to late 60s, crime increased dramatically. I mean, overwhelming increases in crime rates in the mid to late 60s. So you had all these fears that were that were sort of out there in among the electorate, and Wallace was, I think, sort of most effective at tapping into them and tapping into them in a very base and a very angry um, kind of way, and in some many of the same ways that Trump does today. Um, the difference that in '68 though was that you had a candidate like Richard Nixon, who was you know somewhat to the left of Wallace. I mean, he sure. ran against. I mean, he was ran a lot of the same themes as Wallace, but was much better playing the dog whistle than Wallace, who was much more in your face, a la Trump today. You quote from Nixon's speech at the convention, which is forgotten, um, 
great speech. But a great Definitely. speech. I mean, he just a quote from the speech. The forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, they're not racist, they're not sick, they're not guilty of crime, they're, they're black and white. Um, I mean, he really, with this speech, um, it, it, it was, you know, if, if Obama could give a speech that had all dog whistles, um, it, but still had the, not just the veneer of respectability, but really spoke to people's anxieties in a way that uplifted them um, uh, and, and didn't kind of crowd them in fear, it would be that speech. It was a really, really good speech. And it, it suggests something about Nixon, not just that he was devious, but that he was incredibly politically canny, which I think people um, looking back on Nixon, some people tend to forget. Um, and they represented for Nixon just a, a, a complete turnaround, not only of his political fortunes, but in, in many ways, his, um, I don't know, his, his vision, his vision for the country. Um, and, and that speech. Well, I would say the vision of how to create a Republican majority. And that's kind of what that speech and, and what his campaign and what his presidency tried to accomplish. And I think it really did. I mean, that speech is brilliant to me because he basically casts the, 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 the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators, the sort of silent majority that he would run on. Uh, he would talk about in 69. Um, that, that's sort of the, the, the beginning of that idea. This, this notion of like the ordinary Americans out there who, who are not uh, you know, marching in demonstrations, who are not committing crime, just want to live their lives, take care of their families, you know, you know, uh, go on vacation, you know, have, a, have, a, have, a, have a good life. And they can't have it because of all these people out there who are trying to sort of um, uh, destroy the America that they love. And it's a very divisive speech, actually, because the, because we talk about the non-shouters, non-demonstrators. It's just the shouters, the demonstrators are sort of outside, outside the norm, right? They're the, they're, the, they're sort of the, an alien feature in American politics, and that's kind of what he was trying to accomplish with that. But you have to understand that, that this is one of the great lines about '68 that people sort of forget is it's a, it's a line from a couple. Uh, Richard Scammon and Ben Wannberg wrote a book about this, and they talk about in 68, the, the majority of Americans were non-white, uh, non-poor, and uh, another line. It's basically sort of suggesting that most Americans were sort of middle-class whites who wanted uh, to just um, be, uh, uh, have some normalcy, right. right? Have some the tranquility in America. And that's what Nixon spoke to. And it's actually one of the reasons why his campaign is so effective. It reminds me a lot of Hillary Clinton today, actually. That she can run on the very similar theme of saying, you know, you may not like me, you may not totally trust me, but look at look at the alternative, and that's a lot of what Nixon was running on in '68. Look at the alternative. Look at look at the disarray among Democrats. Look at George Wallace. Look at the the crime rates. Look at the assassinations. If you vote for me, things are going to be a little bit simpler. Um, I, I, and I, I think that ended up being a, a key theme for him for '68. And but as time went on, Nixon very much adopted the language and the rhetoric and the idiom of Wallace. Right, the very divisive rhetoric of Wallace of basically presenting liberals and as as basically only interested in helping poor blacks and and of being having sort of alien values to ordinary hardworking Americans. And this was very much what became the GOP narrative post sixty eight. But um, he he did yeah, not I, um, it, it, for a while at least um, ape the the anti government rhetoric of Ronald Reagan, um, yes. which which is interesting and that kind of found its way into the political, the political mind of the activist American conservative, American conservative a little bit later, which is kind of interesting and ironic given that Reagan is, is seen as, as the, as the father of the modern, the modern, modern American political conservative movement. It was not really an anti-government 
movement so much as it was an anti give give stuff to other people that we don't like movement. Right, exactly. I mean, that, that's the thing that, that, that the other people forget about 68 is that we, we have this notion that, that, that America became more conservative after 68, particularly when it came to their views on the role of government. And that's not totally true. I mean, because people still were very supportive of the welfare state. They were very supportive of, you know, money to public schools and, and uh, transportation and and Social Security and Medicare, they, they believe in all of those things, and those and their support for it didn't diminish. In fact, under under uh, Nixon, you know, government expanded pretty dramatically. The regulatory state really kind of emerged under under Nixon. Uh, the EPA, OSHA, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, all of these things. Um, so people weren't opposed to government; they just wanted government services to go to them and not to somebody else. Um, and they viewed what they 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 believed that in the sixties, what was happening was that that uh, the Democrats, the liberals, and the Great Society programs were basically creating all these new programs that were giving money to poor blacks and you know more money for welfare, money for anti-crime initiatives, anti-poverty initiatives, and there was not enough for them. And they felt that if you gave something to somebody else, it meant they they would lose out somehow. This this idea of government being a zero-sum game, uh, in which you know somebody gained and somebody lost, is, is kind of to me the big idea that emerged out of '68. And and I think Nixon understood that pretty well. He he didn't govern like a conservative, he governed like a like a like a liberal to a large extent because he had to, um, but also because it was politically smart for him to do so. Um, and I think that that that's the thing that people sort of forget. People get people get wrong about about post sixty eight. There hasn't been this great dramatic shift to the right, this adoption of conservative orthodoxy. You're seeing this with Trump now, by the way. Right. This is a great example of this. I mean, Trump's if 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 Americans or Republicans in particular. Bought into the sort of small government conservative dog that you've heard for the last twenty or thirty years, they wouldn't be voting for Trump. They would not be voting for Trump. They, but Trump is, in fact, I, I just wrote down zero sum game as you said it because Trump is is a is zero sum game par excellence. You're yes. either winning or you're losing. You're yes. a winner yes. or you're a loser. Or um, which which in and which in some ways is is central to his appeal. Absolutely, he doesn't um, talk about cutting. Medicare and Social Security he talks about raising taxes on rich people. I mean, this is. I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, he, he followed very similar to what Wallace did. Wallace was a New Deal liberal as yeah. well. The only thing he wasn't liberal on was race. Was race right? <laughs> and to, to the nth degree. Uh, but I, this is the thing that that I think is, is really important to understand about this. That what came out of city, and you said it very well. What came out of city was this idea that it wasn't. We don't want smaller government. We want government that basically is for us. Right. And not somebody else, and so any new government initiative, anything, Obamacare or you know healthcare in the '90s, the perception is if you create this new program, it means I'm going to get less. I'm going to pay higher taxes. If I'm an old person, I'm going to lose my Medicare. I'm going to lose my healthcare. That's the perception. It's a zero sum game notion, and and, and I, in a lot of ways, people don't don't I think don't oppose uh, government uh, having big government. I think a lot of people love big government. They just want it. Uh, they want to make sure it's protected for them. And so you hear it, like for example, this like you know, get the government off off my Medicare, right? It makes no sense at all to say that because government is Medicare, government runs the Medicare program. But people's perception is that if you like, you know, this is what you saw in the Obamacare debate. I mean, old people were the biggest sponsor of Obamacare, and, I, and largely because I think they they believed that creating this new program meant they were going to pay the price for it. They were going to have their Medicare is going to be affected by it. It's 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 pure parochialism, and and there's a. I quote this line in the book, uh, E.J. Dion has a great line where he says the biggest winner of the 1960s uh, were libertarians. And it's, it's exactly right. This idea of like, you know, keep the government away from me, 
keep government off, you know, even keep government away from my government program. That's the idea that emanated out of the 60s, came out of, and I think really emerged. And it became the dominant political sort of construct, you know, post-68. One of the things that strikes me about Johnson and, and in the book, and it, and could be in some ways read as a parallel to Obama, um, is, uh, one again, one of the, we talked about it earlier, that Johnson was not, was not able to unify the country on on Vietnam. The country um, had uh, anti-communism essentially, and and a, and a broad consensus to unify around. Um, certainly, t- the tectonic plates were shifting, uh, but you know, ultimately, Americans wanted to be wanted to feel good about being Americans. Um, they wanted something, and and Johnson couldn't give it to them. Um, arguably, um, for a lot of Americans, uh, Obama hasn't given given it to them as well let's uh, to to many it had to many he has um many who have never felt uh that the country did them justice um now now have a reason to feel that way but there are many americans who feel the opposite um whether it's because of just the messiness in the world or for other reasons uh, the silent wars the getting out of the muck of iraq and afghanistan um so when donald trump says something like let's make america great again um He's, you know, he he's speaking to something directly that that for better or for worse, for for reasons that are probably beyond Obama's control, he hasn't been able to provide Americans with. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think when Trump's talking to make America great again, it's it's not to make all Americans great. It's make America great for certain Americans. And I think, you know, the reason I think why Obama has a hard time unifying the country is that the country has been pretty much has I mean it has been divided and it has politicians have actually sought to divide it very much since sixty eight. Right. You know, I think you know what's interesting to me is that it's not there was a sort of sort of liberal consensus in the country in the fifties and sixties. I mean it, it's it's a bit overstated, but I think politicians believed it existed and there was a sense of like everyone kind of sort of spoke from the same or sang from the same hymnal when it came to sort of the role of government and, and sort of what came to communism. And that kind of ended after 68. You had a big divide on foreign policy, the anti-war left and, and the Republican Party, and even even in, inside the Democratic Party. Um, but you also had this rhetoric, and, and Wallace really was the guy who began this, but this idea of presenting liberals in particular as having values that were just alien to, to ordinary working-class Americans. You know, this idea that bureaucrats in Washington, you know, he used to say bureaucrats who can't park their bicycles straight, or bureaucrats who... who um, who packed peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in their, in their, in their briefcases? He said were basically like dividing Americans, and they were creating these these guidelines and regulations that were not taking into account the, the concerns of ordinary Americans. And when he said ordinary Americans, of course, he meant ordinary white Americans. Um, and you know that, that idea that, that perpetuated this idea of, of of one class of Americans basically trying to harm other Americans. You know, and so liberals, of course, pick it up and attack conservatives. And so. I think in a lot of ways, 68 bred polarization that we see today, bred kind of the the anti-elitism and the anti-government language that that Republicans picked up. It's very divisive language, right? It's also very, it's very racially divisive, very racially polarizing, Um, because in a lot of ways, anti-government rhetoric is very much, you know, racist rhetoric. It's very much the idea that the government's only looking out for for blacks and poor people, but not for white people. Or when the Um, government looks out for poor people... Um, and blacks, it isn't looking out for white people at right, the same exactly. time. It can't do both. It can't do both. Together, right? And, and that's absolutely, absolutely right. And, and I think that kind of polarization, this idea of, of 
zero-sum game. It, it gets perpetuated after 68, and it's become such a dominant paradigm that, that, that today the country is more polarized and more divided than it ever has been before. And in a lot of ways, you know, Obama, that he's at 50% is kind of a miracle to any politician in America is 50% because it, it's impossible, I think, for any politician to unite Republicans and Democrats because the, these this 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 rhetoric, this, this divisive rhetoric has become so part of our, our, our culture and so part of the way we talk about politics that it just it's led to, to, to both sides, liberals and conservatives, you know, just sort of demonizing the other, the other one. Well, that's really one thing. I, one of the strengths of your book, again, I think it elevates the importance of politics and rhetoric uh, as motive forces here. Yeah. Um, and and I, I happen to agree with, um, with that elevation, and, and I, I think you've done it brilliantly. I want to sort of talk a little bit now about this election. There are obviously some sure. analogs. When you look at Donald Trump, do you see him as part of an American political tradition, or do you see him as something entirely, entirely new? Um, in, in entirely uh, from cut from a different cloth, coming from coming from nowhere. To, to me, the connective thread between him and Wallace is pretty strong, um, and, and but also just the entire rhetoric of post sixty eight public politics, right? So, so Wallace is an anti elitist. He's anti government, right? But he's but he's very much of a of a uh, again a New Deal a, a New Deal liberal, somebody who's basically you know more government for white people and. Republicans pick that up, but they also sort of learn how to downplay it, right? They learn how to talk about it in dog whistles. Um, so when they talk about, you know, um, Democrats are tax and spenders, the, the subtle uh, understanding is that they want to tax white people, spend money for black people. That's kind of what the idea is, and Republicans and, and most voters kind of get that. Uh, there's a line, I think in the book, I don't know, 84, Mondale wanted to run, had a message about fairness. And when they, when they sort of tested that this message, it turned out that most Americans viewed fairness as code for um, uh, handouts to blacks, which is, of course, is Republican rhetoric. That's how they viewed it. And so uh, Republicans are smart. They played the dog whistle. They, they didn't, like, actually say incredibly racist things. But, but Trump has basically has picked, picked that up. It's become like a Wallace-like figure in that he doesn't use dog whistle. He talks um, politically incorrect, and voters love that. And, and I think what you see is that there is this very strong nativist, you know, racist tendency in the Republican Party and has been there for years and has been perpetuated by Republican politicians very subtly or with dog whistles, not directly. Trump just picked it up and just has become much more vocal about it. And the people are surprised by his how well he's doing. Surprised Republicans aren't turned off by this. I think misunderstands the extent to which Republican Party has and, and a lot of the white support Republican Party um, has been driven by this I mean, frankly, nativist, racist kind of rhetoric. Uh, and so to me, you know, Trump is a logical culmination of, of, of 40 plus years of GOP rhetoric. Um, but but he's different in the sense that he's much more in your face about it. I mean, again, you can look at this, look at the primary campaign. A lot of the things, I mean, in many ways, uh, people like Rubio and Cruz were actually more hawkish on foreign policy, more conservative in some of the things they wanted to do. I would even say less empathetic in their politics. And they're all opposed to pathosis and chip. I mean, Ted Cruz talked about deporting 11 million Mexican immigrants. I mean, they, they were no better in that sense than, than Trump as far as their, their level of empathy. But they were better at, well, maybe not, I mean, better, I suppose, at, at, at uh, not being so vocal about it. Yeah. Clear that Republicans respond to that rhetoric. And they respond even more to somebody who's not afraid to say it. Because a lot of them agree with and believe 
the things that Trump says, right? When Trump talks about how he wants to ban Muslims, Trump talks about deporting Mexican immigrants, a lot of Republicans like that and want to hear that. And for years, that, 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 those ideas were perpetuated, you know, with dog whistles. Now it's just a whistle. You and I um, both have an enormous number of skittish liberal friends on our social <laughs> media accounts. Um, uh, some of them probably overlap, who yeah. are convinced that it's kind of the doomsday scenario. They right. worry that Hillary Clinton is going to get indicted somehow over emails. Right. They've never really liked her to begin with. They they think her campaign is far too conventional in this era when Trump is running a you know Silicon Valley uh, disruptive. Uh, right, right, right. campaign there's there's no way that you know she'll be able to survive the attacks that he's going to launch at her on her husband's infidelities and yada yada this and that um you you are pretty skeptical um that trump has has a chance to win although i will the, the one thing i will say um he is like george wallace but george wallace ran as a third party candidate and trump um you know because of the way the republican delegate selection process has changed is now, you know, Nix has the strength of a Nixon and Wallace together and is not going to probably run with a third party. So at least he has he has a clean shot of winning, well, right. whereas Wallace certainly didn't. Um, but but at the same time, uh, I, the, the way that I usually talk about it with people is I say I would be willing to bet money that he's not going to win, but I think you should, in your political energies act as if he is going to and do everything you can to prevent him from doing so. Well, I, look, I think that, I mean, I, if you don't like Donald Trump, then you should certainly you know, go out and, and work, not make sure he's not elected. I mean, my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to say what I think is going to happen, right? And so, I, yeah. you know, from my perspective, I think it would take a miracle for Donald Trump to be elected president, and I can't even imagine it happening. And, and by the way, a lot of this is, is because, not surprisingly, I would think because of 68, you know, because... One of the things that's interesting in '68, you know, people forget this, but 1960, Richard Nixon won like 30 percent, 30 plus percent of the of the black vote. Um, Republicans could still win, could still win a, a good good chunk of the African American vote in this country. By '68, it was below 10 percent, and that's pretty much continued, more or less, you know, since then. Um, and, and that wasn't, you know, accidental on the part of um, on the part of uh, Republicans. I mean, you, I, I talk a little bit in the book. I mean. The Nixon campaign basically sort of made a decision that, that trying to win black votes was pointless. Uh, they were not. They weren't. They were going to vote for the party that, that, that passed civil rights, uh, which was the Democrats. But also, uh, it was addition by subtraction. I mean, I think they viewed it as um, if more blacks vote for Democrats, that means that, that people will have a perception of the Democratic Party as a party of black people, and that's good for Republicans. And and the the, the sad reality is that, that that was true. Uh, that's the sad reality. And for 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 40-something years, uh, the Democratic Party, you know, relied on African-American support, relied on minority support, you know, white liberal support, and that was not nearly enough from presidential elections. Um, that began to change uh, as the country began to change, as the country became more democratically, more demographically diverse. And so today you have a situation in which uh, I guess 26, 20 percent of the, of the voting population in, in 2012 was non-white. I, I think it may end up being even higher this year. But you look at that non-white voting block, and they pretty much are, are going to go 80 90%, maybe even higher, who knows, for, for, for Hillary Clinton in this election. Um, you know, in 2012, Romney won 27% of, of Hispanic voters. He won less than 10% of black voters. I think Trump, I think Trump will do worse than that. Um, and that's why – and so basically, Republicans adopted this, this strategy of, of ignoring black votes, trying to just win white votes, 
of playing on on white fears of blacks and white fears of minorities, and white you know all kinds of different white resentments, anxieties, cultural anxieties, social anxieties, you know, gays and abortion and guns, all these different cultural issues. That's what they ran on. But what we're seeing now is that that no longer works. There aren't just aren't there aren't enough white voters out there who are going to support that, um, and especially outside the South. Uh, and so that's why I think Trump has, has almost no chance of winning, because when you're losing 20 percent, maybe more of the population uh, by 90 percent, you need to win 70 something percent of the white vote. And he's not going to do that. I mean, even the last election, Romney got 65 percent of white males. I think he got about 60 percent total of, of the white vote and still lost by five million votes. Um, I, I just think that the demographics country have changed so dramatically that Republican strategy that worked for a long time went of running on. Uh, running basically just as a white party, let's be honest about it, as a, as a as a white conservative party, cannot work in a in a in a much more demographically diverse country. Uh, and Trump, the thing about Trump is that all of those problems Republicans have, and this is look, this is not new, right? We know in 2012 Republicans said after Romney lost, we have to win Hispanic votes. We're not going to win national elections, right? We, they they sort of understand this is a demographic challenge for them, and Trump makes it worse. It makes it a thousand times worse, right? I mean, you couldn't pick a candidate less likely to win Hispanic votes than Donald Trump. You really couldn't. Right. Uh, and and that's ultimately their problem. It's one that's not going to go away. This is going to be a problem for a long time for this party, uh, especially because the non-white uh, segment of the population is only going to get bigger. But the election uh, is going to be closer than people. I mean, you're already seeing, because of partisan clustering, Republicans are going to, for the most part, embrace Donald Trump as their yes. nominee, and they are yes. going to vote for him. And they are, and that means the election will be, in the minds of people, fairly close um, throughout the fall. I, I've, I have no. I mean, we're, again, we're seeing that. There, I'm just looking now at an NBC News Survey Monkey poll, which is funny to say, but um, <laughs> is 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 legit and shows what the the Reuters Ipsos poll from last week showed, which is that. Um, as one would expect, once the Republicans settled on nominee, Republicans are coalescing around the nominee, mostly because they, in this era of negative partisanship, don't like the other guy or gal in this case, who's Hillary Clinton, uh, and you know they're they're sort of, I guess, bucking themselves up to vote for him. That doesn't mean that they will. That doesn't mean that they'll be enthusiastic about it. Um, but um, but it, it's going to be. I mean, it, it's it's you know Hillary Clinton. If she wins this election, she's not going to win sixty percent of the popular vote. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. Okay, maybe sure she I, will. I, I okay, agree with that. I think she might very well do that because I actually do think that you're going to see record turnout among non-white voters. I think you may see a lot of Republicans who do end up staying home when all is said and done. It's not. I think you're right. It won't be a huge amount, but if even even get let's say fifteen percent of Republicans who vote for Hillary Clinton. Uh, or stay home. Right. That's, that's devastating for Trump. It is. To win 90 plus percent of Republicans. I mean, I think Romney won 93 percent uh, last time. You need to win about that much because you're already starting from behind. Remember this. I mean, they already, they lost, Romney lost by 5 million votes in 2012. That's right. That's right. You need to make up, you know, 2.5 million votes right, just to break even. And you're going to, he's going to lose uh, non white voters. He's going to certainly lose women voters. No question about that. He may lose Republican voters. And the oh, evidence yeah. that Trump is bringing new voters into the process is very scant. I mean, he's There's certainly no, in the primary, yeah. he's, bringing, he's bringing Republicans who don't vote in primaries into the primary. Um, but, he's, but who vote in general elections. Right. But who do vote yeah. in general elections. Right. Um, uh, and, and what about the idea, and this is the sort of our, our – we'll end with this. Um, we haven't really talked about Bernie Sanders. In some ways, Bernie Sanders is 
Uh, we, you know, we, we could have spent a lot more time. We could have talked about Eugene McCarthy's run, which was fascinating in many ways. Um, um, you know, McCarthy was sort of the first Democratic candidate to, to challenge the idea that the party's control on power, not the first, but really the first to effectively do it. Um, he organized yeah. from within, he found new sources of fundraising. And there's, there's since then been always, always an insurgent Democratic candidate who will, who will run as McCarthy did. And, and Sanders is certainly helped by technology, uh, and, and, um, decentralization and, and media atomization. We could go on and on and on, but I'm curious and, and we probably should, but I'm curious about, uh, the, this alleged crossover vote for Sanders among Trump voters or Trump voters among Sanders voters. I just don't see it. If you are smart enough to cast a ballot for Bernie Sanders because of his ideas, you'll look at Donald Trump um, and recoil in horror for the most part, unless you are a monolithic trade voter, um, which there are vanishingly few of. I Very few. And I, and I totally agree with you. I, I think that Look, there, there are a few Sanders dead editors out there. I mean, we see them on social media a lot. We saw them at this Nevada caucus yes. over the weekend. Yes. But this is, you know, we, I think we tend to, this is something that there's a problem with being a sort of political pundit or political writer is you just tend to get, you, you, sometimes you think what happens on Twitter or Facebook or wherever is real life, and it's not a, really real life. And the reality is that the vast majority of Sanders supporters, I mean, 70, 80% have already said that they will vote for Hillary Clinton. I, I mean, I, when all is said and done, I think it'll be, you know, 95%. Sure. Um, you know, the, the reality is that people say mean things in primaries and they get upset and they get angry, but more often than not, they come together. You know, even in 68, uh, there's a notion of 68 that, that liberals stayed home and didn't vote for Humphrey. And, and yeah, there definitely were some who didn't vote for Humphrey. I mean, places like the New Republic, for example, uh, refused to endorse Humphrey and, and urge people not to vote in the election. Uh, but by and large, you know, liberals and Democrats came home to the party and voted for and voted for uh, for Humphrey uh, because they just saw the alternative is so much worse. And in this case, it was Richard Nixon. Um, you know, if if it was like a case like 2000 where people didn't see George W. Bush as being so bad, you know, they wouldn't vote for Ralph Nader. You certainly saw that happen. But I think this election, people, it's very hard to convince yourself no matter how hard you try. That Donald Trump is somehow better than Hillary Clinton. If you're a liberal, I mean, I just don't see how you make you make that argument unless you're absolutely deluded and you just despise Hillary Clinton. I mean, some of them will stay home, probably in blue states, places where Clinton is, is likely to win. But by and large, I think the threat that, that Trump represents to, to basic liberal values uh, is so great, is so significant that I just I don't think there's that this is going to be an issue. And in fact, I keep hearing people say that Hillary Clinton needs to appeal to, to Sanders. I don't buy it. She should be spending her time trying to appeal to moderate Republicans, the, the vanishing breed of moderate Republicans who, are, who, are, who don't like Trump. And there are many out there who don't like Trump, um, who don't want to vote for Trump. And so I think she's much more likely to, to sort of move more to the middle and try to appeal to those Republicans than try to win over Sanders people who I think, by and large, will realize that when, when the fall comes around, that they have to vote for her. Michael A. Cohen, um, the book American Maelstrom, the 1968 Election and the Politics of Division by Oxford University Press is out now. Thank you so much for talking with me. Quite quite amazing. Uh, it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Hey, Maya, thanks so much. And that is the Knowledge Wonderland podcast for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, the book published by Oxford University Press, which you can buy in actual bookstores where they still exist, online at Amazon or Barnes & Nobles, all the places you tend to buy books, 
is American Maelstrom, the election of 1968, and the politics of division by Michael Lake. This podcast was produced by Tenchi Hikari. It was distributed by ACAP. Tin Tin V is responsible for the wonderful music. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mark Anthony.